evidence and answers. Are we allowed to discuss Christ in our school system or any open forum? Or are we bound by the separation of church and state statement? Is there really such a thing? Is it even legal? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is a popular teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Each week, Pat and his friends provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ. Today we will continue on with part two of a message Dr. Richard Land started the last time we were together entitled, The Separation of Church and State, taken from our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Each year, Pat hosts this conference, which features some of the premier Christian scholars and apologists from across the nation. Our theme was, Can We Be Good Without God?, and featured noted Christian scholars, Dr. Richard Land and Kirby Anderson. Dr. Land provided us with an in-depth study on this topic and how we as Christians can answer to those in the public forum. Let's join him now as he concludes this message on separation of church and state. Would to God that an American president could stand before the American people tonight and say, our problems are merely economic. And they can be remedied. Our problems are problems of the heart. They're problems of the spirit. They're problems of the soul. They're God-sized problems, and only God can solve what ails us. Only God has the resources to solve what ails us as a nation. Humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked way. Oh, now we get down to it. If the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, the fervent prayer of an unrighteous man availeth little. We say, oh, God bless America. God's not going to bless America until we turn from our wicked ways. You see, we have, as a nation, taken a wrong turn. We took a wrong turn in the 1960s. We began to emphasize rights and privileges at the expense of obligations and responsibilities. In fact, I wrote about this in my book, The Divided States of America, in my foreword to the 2011 edition, and I want to read to you some of what I wrote. There are growing multitudes of Americans who have come to believe their country's taken a tragically wrong turn in the late 1960s. These people believe too many Americans followed the Woodstock generation in increasingly emphasizing personal rights and privileges at the expense of obligations and responsibilities. In other words, you know those promises you made when you got married? In sickness and in health, in poverty and in wealth, till death us do part. We weren't just making promises to each other, folks. We were making promises to God. Many of those who now believe this was a foolish and destructive direction to go took that wrong turn themselves and now understand the tragic damage it has inflicted upon their personal lives and on the country. There are those in this country who want to, re there's a real struggle going on, and the struggle is between those who want to remake America and those who want to restore America. Now, in 2008, when President Obama was running for president, I, I listened to what he said. I listened. He didn't say he wanted to restore America. He said, I want to remake America. He has a different vision of America, of a different kind of America, of a new America. I want to restore America. I want to restore an America that is one nation under God, a nation that believes in traditional Judeo-Christian morality. But that won't happen without a revival of God's people. 
You see, we've been immersed in a tidal wave of a new worldview in America that was fueled by the sexual revolution. It's called radical individual autonomy. I am my own ultimate authority. I am my own God. Nobody has the right to tell me what's right and what's wrong. I have the right to decide for myself what's right and what's wrong. And I have the right to self-fulfillment. And it's nobody else's business, no matter what I do, as long as it's between consenting adults, it doesn't matter. Nobody's business but mine. Now, that's a powerful temptation. It's what got Adam and Eve. The devil said, God's not telling you the truth. He's telling you that if you eat the fruit of the tree of good and evil... You'll be like him. Now, the devil knew what a big temptation that was. That's what got him. He wanted to be God. We want to be our own God. And we've been told by society that it's perfectly fine to be our own God. That means that we have the right to do what we want to do. That means if we want to break the promise we made when we got married, that's fine. It means we want to walk away from our obligations and responsibilities to our children, that's fine. And we, we convince ourselves that it has no consequences, where, it has, where in fact it has catastrophic consequences. No man is an island. We're all, we're all impacted by each other's behavior. And the ones that have suffered the most have been the children, the most innocent among us. We've conducted a 40-year experiment in this country on whether or not fathers are optional accessories in the rearing of healthy adults? And the answer is, they are not. Now, with same-sex marriage, we're now arguing that mothers are optional accessories in the rearing of healthy children. And that's just plain goofy. The greatest single advantage that a child can have in America today is to be born into an intact family. That means a mom and a dad who are married to each other and who stay married to each other. Children who grow up in such homes are far more likely to graduate from high school, far more likely to graduate from college, far more likely to get married, far more likely to stay married, far less likely to have a child out of wedlock, far less likely to ever experience poverty. By the way, seven times less likely to ever experience poverty. 5% versus 35%. They are far more likely to not contract a sexually transmitted disease. They're far less likely to be physically and sexually abused by stepfathers, stepbrothers, and live-in boyfriends. In virtually every way you can conceive, children who grow up in such homes are better off. Now, let me lay on you a couple of recent studies that will really shock you, I think. If you do three things, you've got an 8% chance of ever living in poverty. If you finish high school, if you don't have a baby out of wedlock and you get married before you have a child, if you do the reverse of those three things, you've got an 80% chance of living in poverty. Now, let's see. 8% versus 80%. That's what's called statistically significant. 
Boys who lose their father in the home before they're 12 are five times as likely to end up in the penitentiary by the time they're 25. Hallmark did a, a promotion where they gave convicts free Mother's Day cards, and it was so successful they decided to do it for Father's Day, and nobody asked for a card. I talked to one man who's been in prison ministry for 25 years, and I said, how many of the men you've ministered to had a good relationship with their father? And they said, none. None in 25 years. And yet we continue to convince ourselves we can walk away from our promises, walk away from our obligations and responsibilities, because we have the right to do what we want to do. And catastrophes left in our wake. Girls who lose their father in the home before their sixth birthday are five times as likely to become sexually active by the time they're 16 with all of the physical, emotional, and spiritual consequences that come from such behavior. Five times as likely. And yet we have no-fault divorce. Ronald Reagan was right when he said that the single worst thing he ever did in public life was sign the first no-fault divorce law as governor of California. And we hear a lot about wealth disparity in the United States. If you grow up in an intact home and you're a boy, by the time you're 25, the average benefit to you financially is $6,200 a year more in annual income. And if you're a girl, it's $4,700 a year more in annual income. And if you grow up in an intact home, and you marry someone who grew up in an intact home, and you stay married yourself to each other. By the time you're 40, there's an average $42,000 a year difference in your family income than couples who do not fit that description. $42,000 a year. The study discovered that 37% of all the wealth disparity in the United States can be explained by single parenthood. And yet we have a situation where we had in 1960, we had a 5.3% illegitimacy rate. Now we have a 41% illegitimacy rate. And between 1950 and 2010, we had a 39% drop in marriage. And in the last 10 years, 17% of that, 17% dropped just in the last 10 years. We have fewer people who are married to each other today, percentage-wise, than any time in American history. And when we have more children born out of wedlock than any time in American history. And it's been a catastrophe for our children, and it's been a catastrophe for adults, and it's been a catastrophe for our nation. And the biggest reason for it is a failure of nerve, a failure of backbone, and a thundering silence from the pulpits of the United States of America. They won't preach on these issues because they're afraid they're going to offend somebody in the pews. I'm a lot more afraid of what God will do to me if I don't tell the truth than I am about what people will do to me if I do tell the truth. But what happened in the 1960s? We had a failure of faith in the pulpit. In 1963, there was a survey done of the National Council of Churches, churches, that's the mainline denominations, the Methodists, the Episcopalians, the Congregationalists, the Presbyterians, the Northern Baptists, and they found that not even half 
of the ministers believed in the virgin birth or the resurrection. Nine years ago, George Barna did a study of how many ministers in America had a biblical worldview. Half of the ministers had a biblical worldview. The highest percentage was Southern Baptists with 71%. That means 29% of Southern Baptist preachers did not have a biblical worldview. And the lowest was Methodists. 21% had a biblical worldview, which might help explain why Methodists have gone from 13 million to 6.5 million. They got the growth pattern, the downward flight path of a rock. Alexander the uh, Alexis de Tocqueville came to America in the 1830s. He realized that Americans were a new kind of people. We were different than Europeans. And he wanted to know why. And he went all over America trying to figure out why. And he said, I, I tried to figure out what made America different. I went to her town hall meetings. I went to her seats of power. I went to her captains of industry. But I didn't understand what made America great until I went to church and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness. He said, America is great because America is good. If America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. We had a failure of nerve, a failure of faith, and a failure of backbone in the American pulpit. We have way too many invertebrate preachers who won't preach the truth and don't know the truth or won't preach the truth. And we've paid the consequences. We've been shepherdless. What's the answer? If my people to call by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Now, that means we've got to confess our sin. We've got to, turn, we've got to confess our sin and turn from our wicked ways. That means we've got to repent. We've got to repent of loving ourselves more than the Lord. We've got to repent of going our own way. We've got to repent of thinking that we're the gods of our own lives. We've got to repent of having broken our marriage vows and abandoned our responsibilities and our obligations and our promises. We've got to turn back to God and ask for his forgiveness. Now, you know, fortunately, he said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's incredible. You know, you've all heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. Actually, it most often just breeds familiarity. We, come back, we become too familiar with holy things. I often feel like I ought to take off my shoes when I stand behind the pulpit. I'm, I'm on sacred ground. If we confess our sins, now the word confess there is a compound word. It means to say the same as. That means we agree with God about our sin, that it was our sin that made it necessary for Jesus to die on the cross. If we confess our sin... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Every one of us can walk out of here tonight with a clear conscience, scrubbed clean. Great, Scott, why wouldn't we do that? What sin is worth not doing that? Do you see what 2 Chronicles says? There's some divine tipping point, some divine critical mass. When enough of God's people get right with God, he's going to lean over from heaven and pour out a heal the land kind of blessing on the whole country. Now listen, God has blessed America. I mean, there's no way you can look at American history and come to any other conclusion but that God has blessed us. I mean, nobody can be that lucky. 
I mean, trying to exp- it takes a lot of faith to believe that America's history is just fortuitous circumstance. God has blessed us. But I've never seen a heal the land kind of blessing. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see that. Well, it's up to us. It's up to us who are believers. Our salvation is not going to come from Washington, D.C. It's not going to come from the state capitol. It's not going to come from the city council. Government is a caboose. The people are the locomotive. When the people get right with God, the government will come right behind. When we change, the government will change. Sadly, we have a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. That means that the government we have is exactly the government we want. Now, I've avoided, so far, perhaps the biggest sin, the one I believe we're getting the biggest judgment for, The fact that we have practiced child sacrifice on a massive scale, killing 56 million babies since 1973. And God had a plan, and God had a purpose for every one of those babies. God never created a nobody. Everybody is a somebody to God. Now, you may have been a surprise to your parents, but you were not a surprise to God. And every one of us is unique, knitted and embroidered together in our mother's womb, as Psalm 139 says. And God said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. And while you were in your mother's womb, I sanctified you and made you a prophet to the nations. The unique, never-to-be-duplicated combination that each of us is was determined at the moment of conception. How many of you have siblings? Raise your hand. Are you different than your siblings? Oh, yeah. And aren't you grateful? (laughs) biggest surprise I've had as a father is how different my three children are. I've got three children born over a four-year, 11-month period. Girl, boy, girl. I've got two girls. I could, you never have seen two white girls who were more different than those two girls. One's a talker. I don't know where she gets it from. I used to pick her up from school, and just opening the car door was an invitation to a stream of consciousness rendition of everything that had happened in school that day with nothing too unimportant to be described in exhaustive detail. It's easy to carry on a conversation with Jennifer. You just have to be in the room. My youngest daughter, I pick her up from school and said, Rachel, what'd you do in school today? Stuff. <laughs> well, what'd you eat at lunch? Food. <laughs> what'd you do at recess? Play. <laughs> same mother, same father. They even look alike, but they're utterly different. And that is the way God knitted them and embroidered them together in their mother's womb. Have we aborted the next Billy Graham? Have we aborted the next Abe Lincoln? Have we aborted the next Martin Luther King Jr.? Have we aborted the little girl that God was knitting and embroidering together in her mother's womb to come forth and find the cure for cancer? There's a one-third chance that's exactly what we've done. There's a 100% chance that we have lost God's plan and purpose for 56 million babies. I'm surprised God hasn't judged us more severely than he has. And abortion on demand could not continue to be the law of the land without at least the acquiescence of Christians. You say, well, how can you say that, Dr. Land? Well, I'll give you an example. When Bill Clinton was being impeached, I was interim pastor of a church in Lebanon, Tennessee. Give you the flavor of Lebanon. The county newspaper is the Wilson County Democrat. Now, I tried to make it Waterford crystal clear that a lecher, an amoral man as president, was a judgment of God on the United States. That Bill Clinton was a judgment of God on America. 
Well, I hadn't even gotten down from the top step of the podium before I was accosted by two deacons. He said, we wish you'd quit picking on our president. And I said, well, I wish your president would quit having sex with girls less than half his age in the Oval Office. See, Bill Clinton and I are the same age. Monica Lewinsky is the age of my oldest daughter. That's disgusting. It's not just immoral. It's disgusting. Well, their response was amazing to me. They said, we don't care. He's been good for the economy. He's been good for the unions. We'd vote for him again. I said, well, you're just a couple of hookers then, aren't you? You know, when you're interim, brother, you can let righteousness roll down. <laughs> like, I said, you're just a couple of political hookers for sale to the highest bidder. We have a responsibility to vote our beliefs, our values, and our convictions. And our beliefs, our values, and our convictions are more important than our pocketbook. And I'm going to tell you just real briefly about the subject that's preached about the least in American churches. The judgment of believers works. We are saved. We can't lose our salvation. But our works are going to be judged at the judgment of believers' works. And we're going to give an account of every word and deed and every vote that we've made or didn't vote. It's called the Bema of Christ. That's a pretty sobering prospect, isn't it? We're going to stand before our Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. No other foundation can be laid than that which is laid in Christ Jesus. Some people build upon that foundation gold, silver, precious stones, others wood, hay, and stubble. Each man's work shall be judged by fire. If the wood, hay, and stubble are consumed, you're still saved, yet as by fire. But the gold, the silver, and the precious stone are refined, and you hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. We've got to have a revival. Now, you know, revivals, it's an interesting word. You've got to be vibe before you're revived. All great movements of God in church history have come when God's people got right with God. If we're going to have an American future worth having, God's people are going to have to get right with God. And when we get right with God, lost people notice. We treat them differently. We treat each other differently. And they want to know why, and we get to tell them. And some of them get saved. If enough of them get saved, we have an awakening. And when the saved people who've been revived and the lost people who've been saved apply the truths of Scripture to the evils of society, you have a reformation. And that's what we must have. We're too far gone for anything else. We've got to have a reformation that shakes America for Jesus the way Germany and Europe were shaken by Luther and Calvin, the way Whitfield and Wesley shook Great Britain in the 18th century, and the way Whitfield and Wesley and the tenants shook Colonial America in the First Great Awakening laid the foundation for the revolution. Revival that ripens into awakening and culminates in a reformation. That's what we must have. And it'll happen that way. Not in reverse. It starts with us. With you and with me. The future of America is being decided. One person at a time, just like you. One family at a time, just like yours. One church at a time, just like this. One community at a time, one city at a time, one state at a time, all across America. If my people, which are called by my name, to humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, when I hear from heaven, Forgive their sin and heal their land. May God bless America and may God make America a nation 
he can bless. God bless you. God bless your family. And God bless the United States of America. For joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. This concludes our study entitled The Separation of Church and State, as taught by Dr. Richard Land. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. Log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. We do have a wide variety of resources available to you. Just go online. That's evidenceandanswers.org. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on the Donate button on the lower right-hand side of our homepage. Join us again next time on the air or online for more evidence and answers.